It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. A new study reveals that a test can help prevent overprescription of antibiotics when treating a common childhood malady, sinusitis, the inflammation of the tissues in our sinuses in the forehead, cheeks, and nose. Dr. Nader Sheikh is a pediatrician at UPMC Children's Hospital and lead author of this study. Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Your team looked at acute sinusitis. Is it more than a severe cold? What? It's a bacterial superinfection that happens after a cold. So first you get the virus that goes into your nose. Your sinuses are connected to your back of your nose. And then uh, your your lining of your mucosa and your immune system is busy with the virus. And some children get a bacterial superinfection on top of the, the virus. So it's it's an infection. And importantly, the bacteria that cause it come from the nose. And two or three bacteria cause most of the cases of sinusitis. Mm-hmm. Common symptoms? Uh, so the sinuses are closed cavities, the bacteria are multiplying, so they, they cause pressure, they cause inflammation, runny nose, headache, um, just not feeling well, malaise, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Is it difficult to, to diagnose? Yes, very difficult because the symptoms are the same as a cold. It just Instead of normal cold would get better after a week or 10 days, instead of getting better, you get this super infection and you get worse, but it's the same kind of symptoms. So it's hard to know if it's just a cold dragging on or if it's, it's a it's a new problem. So when the symptoms first appear, uh, is it first thought cold, infection? Does it depend yeah. on the doctor? What? Yes, it's very confusing because we, we can't see inside the sinuses. For ear infection, we go look in the ear and for pneumonia, we listen to the lungs. But here we're sort of in a, in a we're sort of out and no clue. We sort of have to guess who has sinusitis just based on the duration, which is not very satisfying clinically. As a pediatrician, when you saw a patient with a bad cold, I'll call it that, and the parents say, doctor, help me out, help, give my daughter something, did you often prescribe antibiotics? Yeah, I, I did sometimes for if, if the cold was really bad or prolonged, so more than 10 days, um, or if it's really severe and getting worse after a week. So that's not typical for a common cold. So then I would prescribe antibiotics to some of those children, but I never knew if I was doing the right thing or not. I had a bad feeling maybe I was over-prescribing antibiotics. And, and that sort of led to this study that you were curious exactly. about? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So what was the big question on your mind when you say, we need to look uh, further into this? Yeah, the question was, in children who don't have these bacteria that we have in the, these bacteria that cause sinusitis in the nose, if we take those children and give them antibiotics, are they getting any benefit from the antibiotics or are we just treating them for no reason? Mm-hmm. The overprescription of antibiotics is a concern for the medical community. Why so? Antibiotics have side effects for the child. So they give you the, the, a lot of, a lot of children get diarrhea and then it kills not only the bacteria that we want to kill, but it kills bacteria that are sort of called good bacteria in the gut and in the nose. So it changes the microbiome of the child's gut, and we don't really know what the implications of that are mm-hmm. long term. 
you used a, ba- a bacterial swab to determine the efficacy of antibiotics. What kinds of bacteria is this test looking for? There's three bacteria that we were looking for. They're, they're just common bacteria that kids have in their nose. They're colonized with it. And then when you get sinusitis, they get sucked into the sinuses. Now, can parents request getting a nasal swab for this? Um, when we started the study, we had to ask our lab to add that to our test that we could order, and they did. So pediatricians can do the same thing that we did. It's just going to take a little bit of uh, asking for the test on their panel. Uh, so a little bit of asking. I want to ask you about time. Now, how long does it take to determine if the sinusitis is caused by the bacteria and therefore the antibiotics might be an effective treatment, whereas the parents might be saying, help, I need some help with my kid now. Right. Yes. So right now uh, there's two tests. One is a culture. The culture will take two to three days because we have to wait for the bacteria to grow. And then there's a PCR, just mm-hmm. like uh, COVID. Right. So that will that will be quick in a few hours or the next morning we will know. Is this bacterial test something new uh, or has it been around for a while and you've wanted to explore it more deeply? It's not new. It's uh, It's been around for a long time. We just wanted to know, do antibiotics work in kids who don't have bacteria? Okay. Uh, has it been used much uh, from what you know from no. you and your colleagues? No, no. We, we didn't really use it much before because we... The nose is a mess and has a lot of bacteria in it, so we 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 weren't we didn't have a question to use it for. Now the focus of this was acute sinusitis, but could this type of testing apply to other maladies? Uh, it it might uh, any back any infection that's connected to the nose and the bacteria come from the nose, so could be t- studied in a similar way. All right, now. So what are the next steps? What would you like uh, your research, your findings to sort of provoke further steps? Basically, the study showed that we could diagnose and treat uh, uh, sinusitis like we do strep throat. So when we have a child with strep throat, they come in with a sore throat and they say, what do I have? We swab the throat. And if it's positive, we treat. Otherwise, we say it's a virus. We could do the same thing for sinusitis. And the next step is to figure out how to roll out this approach so it can go quickly in the clinic, just like it does for strep. Very, very briefly, very briefly, uh, the study has been published. Uh, getting any reaction from colleagues uh, across the country or even locally? Yeah, I've had some positive reactions as to uh, uh, the scope of the study and the size of the study and that it solves a clinical problem that was in need. Dr. Nader Sheikh is a pediatrician at UPMC Children's Hospital and lead author of this study. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kevin. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. This year, the Aetna Borough Council approved a package of animal protection legislation, including one measure that is a first in Pennsylvania, as well as prohibiting the sale of fur products. Jessica Semler and Colleen Schaefer are both members of the Aetna Borough Council. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, happy to be here. Earlier this month, council passed the ban on selling first-generation fur products. Uh, Jessica, let me start with you. What prompted that legislation? 
We have done a whole lot in the last several years around equity in our community. Um, in talking with some of our neighbors about maybe things that we haven't done yet, uh, looking at different ways that we could possibly um, improve the quality of life for animals as well in the borough. Mm -hmm. Colleen, uh, what are the parameters? We're talking about first generation for no sales within Pennsylvania, uh, within Aetna. Uh, what are the parameters here? Um, leather grandfathered in um, because it's a byproduct of the uh, meat industry. Second generation fur products are permitted in kind of secondhand shops. So when you think about it, it's not that very first sale of that product. Um, but we wanted to make sure when we're taking into account local businesses that we didn't um, do kind of provide them with any undue hardship if we've had secondhand shops in Aetna, making sure that we can provide that availability to them. Um, but it really just uh, makes sure that we're not doing any of that original sale of fur, that no kind of new animal product is coming out as a result of it. Um, and then we do have some caveats in there to allow for religious and cultural exemptions. Right. Uh, are there um, many fur sales, first generation fur sales in Aetna, or are you just heading off something that didn't wasn't really a problem maybe yet? There, there would not be many fur sales in Aetna, actually. Um, we, uh, talked to a couple of businesses when we were um, looking at doing this because we wanted to make sure we weren't making any decisions that would affect our businesses uh, without their input. Um, but part of what uh, interested uh, us in this uh, ordinance is that this would be the first of its kind in Pennsylvania. So while this wouldn't uh, have a lot of direct effects in Aetna, we wanted this to be a blueprint for what other municipalities could be doing. Uh, because we're the 14th, I believe, the 14th government between in the U.S. and even uh, internationally that has uh, a sale, a first for sale ban. And so we were hoping that by doing this, this would inspire other localities to do the same thing. Back in March, council also approved legislation to protect our furry friends, ban on declawing cats, ban on tethering unattended cats and measures for protecting dogs in extreme weather. Uh, Colleen, were these practices that were common in Aetna or just trying to be forward thinking? So again, I think um, some of them were occurring, right? Uh, particularly with our companion animals, we have a lot in Aetna. Um, I think the um, tethering ban of cats, I, I myself, I've been in animal advocacy for quite a while. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh my goodness, but it's really no different than the tethering of dogs. And folks actually do do it in and around the city of Pittsburgh. That is something that does happen. And so again, um, we might not have had a direct response um, from our community, but it would have been something that could have arisen in our community. And Jessica, the ban on tethering unattended cats I understand this obviously can be dangerous for the animal, but it also could possibly be dangerous for individuals as well. Is that correct? Absolutely. So it can really be a dangerous public health issue because if a cat is cornered, um, they can attack, they can bite. So it could potentially hurt um, folks who are walking their dog or maybe children who are, you know, walking by. Um, also, another thing that I want to note is part of us uh, doing this package we also get benefits uh, from animal friends uh, for our community members. And that was one of the biggest uh, pieces why we were looking into this. So because we are uh, 
because we've done this legislation, our residents now have access to discounted uh, neutering services, medical services. Uh, our police officers will be able to have training around how to uh, be around um, different animals and whatnot. Um, our our food pantry now regularly gets uh, donations of uh, pet food and litter and those types of things. And especially something that we saw, I think really over uh, the shutdown, the COVID shutdown, was that a lot of folks didn't necessarily have the resources for their pets. There were some resources for folks who needed food, et cetera, for um, their human family, but pets are really they are our family too. And one of the big goals is to keep families intact. And that includes, um, you know, our furry friends. And so by uh, doing this legislation, we are part of this program now that um, our residents are getting these benefits as well. Will police enforce, is it animal control, or maybe it's neighbors looking out to alert uh, public officials and authorities? Yeah, it's definitely both. Uh, our police are really fantastic when it came, when it comes to animal issues already. But in terms of enforcement, um, that would be our police officers who would be enforcing uh, when it comes to the cat tethering and the inclement weather. Uh, one thing I would like to clarify is these ordinances are certainly not meant to be punitive and they're not meant to go out and kind of catch folks doing the wrong thing. I think um, one of the components is really educating the community and making sure that we're protecting our community, whether it be the humans or our furry friends. I just want to make sure that we make note of that, that this is really just a tool to help us become that more compassionate community. So although, of course, we do have to enforce these ordinances, uh, our goal is certainly to educate and decrease the occurrences of these things. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, are both of you pet owners as well? I absolutely am. I have my two fur children, two dogs sitting very closely to me right now. I'm very proud of them for behaving <laughs> on this call. Um, and I did uh, have a cat as well. Jessica? Oh, yes. I have two cats, uh, Rory, who's a 20-pound Maine Coon, and Titus, who is an orange cat and a general troublemaker. And we, we absolutely uh, engaged in our pets to make sure they were all right with all of this as well. They were positively enthusiastic. All right. Special consultants. Yes. <laughs> Colleen Schaefer and Jessica Sembler are members of the Etna Borough Council. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. It's the Confluence. I'm Kevin Gavin. Three exhibits now in Pittsburgh explore the challenges and dangers faced by black Americans on the road and how historically they've coped. 90.5 WESA's Bill O'Driscoll spoke to one Pittsburgh resident who lived that history. Willie Williams remembers the first time he consulted the Negro Traveler's Green Book. It was the late 1950s, and Williams was a young Army private first class from Pittsburgh. The Georgia native says he knew the obstacles to traveling while black, especially in the Jim Crow South, where most hotels and restaurants were off-limits. At that time... You know, black people couldn't go in hotels and all. Then Williams was assigned to a military base near Dallas. I found out that I had to drive, you know, through all those southern states to get to uh, Texas. Williams lived on the north side. And I went to a, a uh, traveling agent, a black tra traveling agent in Pittsburgh. And uh, that's when I got acquainted with uh, 
using the Green Book for traveling. The Green Book was a paid paperback directory of businesses around the country that welcomed blacks, from hotels to gas stations and other services. It was created in 1936 by Victor Hugo Green, a black postal worker from Washington, D.C. And these are very serious topics because people were killed going into the wrong town or stepping into the wrong hotel or whatever. It was very hostile, and so that's why the Green Book exists. Samuel Black is director of African-American programs at the Heinz History Center, which is hosting a touring Smithsonian Institution exhibit on the Green Book. He says the show maps the terrain black people had to so carefully navigate. They really had to be strategic. They knew how far they could drive on a tank of gas. So they had to find out where we're going to stop to get gas, where we're not going to be hassled. The Big History Center show includes displays on the publication, artifacts from businesses it featured, from service stations to Harlem's famous Savoy nightclub, and even home movies of people on vacation frolicking beneath palm trees. Black says the exhibit also documents a vibrant national network of mid-century black-owned businesses. You can pick up a green book and learn about black businesses in Los Angeles or Seattle or other places. So it kind of broadened people's perspective and understanding of the black landscape in America. And make no mistake, Pittsburgh, like other northern cities, had its own green book listings. Most were in the Hill District, the Flamingo Hotel, V's Restaurant, Orchid Beauty Parlor. Black travelers needed those listings because many businesses here still restricted or denied service to blacks. Most people think and still for some reason have this notion that all the bad stuff happened in the South. It did not. And so that's one part of the story we wanted to tell that we felt was very important for people to learn and understand about Pittsburgh. Black curated Pittsburgh-specific content, including a display about famed singer Nat King Cole's 1949 lawsuit against a downtown hotel for denying him accommodation. There are also hair salon chairs from a black woman-owned beauty parlor here and oral histories from Pittsburgh residents, including Willie Williams. Williams' family was part of the Great Migration, that period starting in the early 20th century when millions of blacks came north to find jobs and escape Jim Crow. The Great Migration is also the title of an exhibit at the Frick Pittsburgh that explores the role automobiles played in that historic shift. The Frick's Don Breen says that although cars allowed unprecedented mobility, they also brought new dangers. People saw freedom of movement for African Americans as a threat. So they would travel at night when, you know, other drivers might be less likely to tell the color of your skin when you're driving. The exhibit will appeal to car lovers with 10 vintage vehicles, including a 1914 Model T Ford and a 1934 Buick Model 91 Club Sedan, rich brown with chrome fittings, the epitome of pre-war luxury. Mannequins wear stylish period clothes, but reminders of the risks of auto travel are all around. Black travelers favored big cars because they had to carry food they might not be able to buy on the road and because they might have to sleep in them and a banner-sized image reproduces a chilling photo taken in 1956 in Clinton, Tennessee. Three black people trapped terrified inside a sedan under attack from a white mob protesting school integration. The Frick's Breen. It's a disturbing image, but it's, it was a reality for a lot of families who traveled in that time period. 
A higher-tech look at that history is downtown at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust's 820 Liberty Gallery. Traveling While Black is a touring, virtual reality-based installation in a storefront that replicates Ben's Chili Bowl, a venerable Washington, D.C. diner long listed in the Green Book. Strap on a VR headset and you'll find yourself seated in a booth or on a stool right next to patrons telling their own stories of traveling while black. In this clip, Sandra Butler Truesdale recalls traveling by train into Virginia as a girl in the 50s and not being allowed to relieve herself until the train stopped. I see people treat their dogs better now. Right now, they treat the dogs better than they treated us as, as black Americans. Change came after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, around when the Green Book stopped publishing. Williams, the Pittsburgh Army private who used the Green Book to travel south is now 87. That's when uh, things opened up where black people could go anywhere they wanted to go, just about, you know. Williams often visits his Georgia hometown, Madison. And I enjoy it. Now, you know, that uh, I can move around in the town without uh, anyone saying anything or, you know, being arrested or whatever else, you know. It's, it's, it's a beautiful little town. But just as segregation wasn't limited to the South, dangers to black travelers are not past us. Numerous studies show black drivers are still more likely to be stopped by police than white motorists. The VR experience Traveling While Black includes an interview with Samaria Rice. She's the mother of Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old boy killed by police in Cleveland in 2014 while playing in a park. I wasn't finished raising him, you know. I wasn't finished nourishing him, and America robbed me. Yep, they robbed me. Traveling While Black continues at 820 Liberty through September 24th. The Negro Motorist Green Book runs at the History Center through August 13th. And at the Frick, the Great Migration continues into February. Bill O'Driscoll, 90.5 WESA News. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, a man who died in the county jail's mental health unit had been waiting for months for treatment at Torrance State Hospital. How many people are waiting and why so long? Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Laura Satsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.